you or someone you love needs help for an addiction, where do you turn? Foundations Recovery Network offers individualized treatment for the whole person. Our goal goes beyond short-term sobriety. We address substance abuse and co-occurring mental health issues together, providing a firm foundation for long-term recovery. The first step is often the hardest, but we're here with a free assessment, insurance information, and treatment options. Our confidential helpline is available 24-7, so call 877-714-1318 and discover the Foundation's Recovery Network difference today. This is Rich Roll, and you're listening to Silver Guy Radio. Yo, what's up? Thank you for tuning in today. Thanks to Humans for bringing us in. Thanks to you for supporting the show. Uh, be sure to check us out at thatsoberguy.com for past episodes and for resources. And uh, also, you can connect with us on Instagram, at RealThatSoberGuy, and at Shane Raymer on Twitter. Uh, a couple of announcements before we get to our guest today. Uh, we have the first Sober Guy live show coming up September 7th at the Phoenix Theater in Petaluma, California. Uh, we have good friend and special guest TJ Woodward. He's the author and creator of Conscious Recovery. Uh, so you can go to thephoenixtheater.com to get tickets or that soberguy.com. Uh, and you can click on the live events tab there and, uh, and get those, man. It's going to be a good time. Uh, please come out, check us out, support us, connect with some people. Uh, we put this together really to have some fun, help create some community and uh, talk a little bit of shit too. So uh, we're going to enjoy ourselves. Uh, the, the, the ladies will be there. Uh, the ladies meaning, uh, the Jess and Mel, they'll be there to support us and they've been doing a great job in putting this whole thing together. So, uh, much love to them. Um, let's see, what was our other announcement? I don't even know if I have one. I think I lied to you. So let's just get right to our guest today. Super pumped to have them on today. We got Boston's own father and daughter recovery team, Megan Kenny and Bobby Kenny. And, uh, man, it's an honor to have them on today. Great folks. Uh, Megan, Bobby, it's great to have you. Uh, other than the A's kicking the Boston Red Sox ass in the ALCS <laughs> this year, what else is going to happen? How you doing? <laughs> yeah. What's up? How are you guys? We are fantastic, Shane. How are you? Man, thank you for having us on, Shane. Such a pleasure, man. I'm honored. Yeah, no, thank you. And and I don't I don't remember how long ago. It's definitely been a few months, but uh you guys yeah. were kind enough to feature me on the Addictionary podcast. I appreciate that. We had a really yeah. good time. So uh it really is an honor to have you guys on tonight and uh can't wait to hear a little bit about your story, how you guys launched the podcast, and then uh what's going on and how, how all that's going. Absolutely. Yeah, man. More power. To well, it. let's I love it. let's kind of let's kind of um, let's kind of start ahead of the game first, like because I your aunt now Nikki right reached out to me months ago before when you guys were kind of getting ready to launch, yep. and um, and she just said, hey, you know, we we uh, we really want to launch this podcast. Um, you know, uh, my crazy niece Megan came to me with this wild <laughs> idea. And was like, we're going to do this shit and how, but, and I said, well, how the hell are you going to do it? And, and, and so, you know, she kind of reached out. I know you guys have some other resources that you leaned on too, but we had a great conversation. I love the tenacity of just saying like, man, we're going to do this. And, um, and we don't necessarily know how we're going to do it right off the bat, but let's just go for it. That's kind of the same way that I launched sober guys. So I really admired that. And we had a great conversation and here you guys are, you have this awesome podcast. So, uh, take me back a little bit and, and tell me how this started, uh, with you two doing the podcast. So, I mean, well, first Shane, thank you for having us on. It's, yeah, it's a pleasure. You. you have a great show and, you. um, you're doing great work and it's, it's, it's awesome to also watch, you know, you grow and, 
and connect with people and really make a difference in people's lives who um who can benefit from this explosion of these recovery podcasts out here right now and yeah it's crazy and, there's so many different you know platforms coming up it's awesome yeah and it's just like you know it's it's crazy right because it's like we can broadcast i guess if you want to say use that word to thousands of people um if they're tuning in obviously and that's the hope but like it's also incredibly intimate to yeah. be able to listen to somebody's voice every week while you're in your car or while you're you know before you go to sleep or you know on a train or something like that so it's these great relationships that people are able to form with one another when we don't even know each other yeah and yet we're able to like really lend our voices and our experiences to the people who haven't really gotten there yet. So it's really been a blessing. Um, yeah. You no, know, and pe- people but, like you having shows like, like yours really um, helped us kind of come up with the idea specifically though, Chris from dopey podcast was the person that really kind of like got the ball rolling for me because, you know, I go to, I, I went to school with Chris. He was in the same, clinical psychology doctoral program as me really see i didn't i didn't know that that's that's crazy i did not know that yeah and so and so i met chris two years ago when because i i had started this opioid crisis and advocacy student group at my school because i just felt like being somebody in recovery i had a certain lens in which i saw the subject and here i was surrounded by peers getting trained to treat people in a professional setting like me that i didn't really think had the information and the knowledge that they probably needed in order to help people like me. And so I felt the need to kind of put the student group together. And, you know, right when Chris entered the program, he sent me an email and was like, I'm interested in joining the group. And, and that's how the friendship kicked off. And it wasn't long after that, when he told me about his podcast and I was just like, this is a fucking awesome idea. (laughs) This is, and this is like, perfect. This is a way to, to, to speak out and speak up, share your story on a platform without really like somebody interrupting you or getting mm-hmm. into a, you know, a battle or a, an argument, but just really being able to like put your story out there and, and with the hope that somebody might be able to, you know, connect to it. And so that's really how it started. Yeah, that's, that's huge. And, and so how did, um, how, how did, how did you become a father and daughter, you know, kind of co-hosting together? I think that part of it is so awesome. Obviously, Bobby, I'm sure you have your own story, Megan, you have your own story too. Um, and I'd like to get into a little bit of, of each of those. Um, but how did that kind of come together as far as the podcast is concerned? She dragged me into it. <laughs> she literally beat the shit out of me and told me I was going to be working again. <laughs> it's kind of funny because I had tossed around a couple different ideas as to who I could potentially have as my co-host. Yeah. Um, and really, it was just right under my nose the whole time. And, it, and it, it was my dad. And like the reason why that was so important to me was, you know, and, and we'll get into it in a little bit about our individual stories, but. Um, you know, I didn't achieve recovery in a conventional way and neither did my dad. And I think having him as kind of the model for me that, that recovery was still possible, despite the fact that, you know, I didn't want to explore Suboxone and Methadone. Um, 12 step was too scary for me at the time. Mm. AA meetings just petrified me. Um, you know, raising my hand and having to talk about my vulnerabilities and things that I was ashamed of with already, you know, struggling for years with social anxiety was just, it wasn't doable. It wasn't practical. It wasn't feasible. It wasn't going to happen. So I attended a million meetings and could never actually, you know, pick up what they were putting down. And so 
you know, instead of me feeling like a failure and like, oh my God, I'm never going to get this. You know, I had my dad as the model of hope to be able to say like, you can actually figure this out and do it a way that works for you. And you don't have to yeah. feel shameful about that and give up, you know? Yeah. I mean, how crazy is that too? Like you're talking about suffering from social anxiety, not being able to speak, not being able to talk. About, now you do a podcast. I mean, that's like, I mean, talk about the growth in that alone. I mean, that's huge. Um, I, you know, that's really one of the things that like I have to pinch myself about today because it's, it's still not super easy for me. And, mm -hmm. and it's not even just a podcast. Like I, I speak on public platforms last year. I did a speech in front of almost 2000 people and it wow. was like, no friggin' way yeah. would that have ever <laughs> even been something that I even thought could have been possible even just a few years ago. And so, yeah. you know, but, but like, that's the crazy thing is like, you get into recovery, you start figuring things out about yourself. And little do you know that the things that petrify you the most are the things that could potentially become the most fulfilling in your life. And so it's really, um, it's quite, um, it's really ironic, believe it or not. Yeah. So Bobby, let's, uh, let's start with you, man. Like if that's cool, um, yeah. I, I, I mean, I'd love to hear a little bit about your background, um, and, and kind of what your, your journey, your story is through, uh, some of the, you know, some of the crazy times and then into, into recovery too. Yeah. Well, Shane, I, I, you know, I, I didn't start doing drugs until I was, you know, in my late twenties, but I had been in four different reform schools from the time I was like 12 years old to, you know, to 17. I was in trouble. I, I, I get in a lot of trouble. I, yeah. I had a chip in my shoulder. You know, I had an old man that used to, you know, pretty much use me for a punching bag. And mm. so going to reform school was like a vacation for me, actually, you know. So, uh, and I, I got into business at 19 years old. I opened a, a carpet store. Don't know. I didn't know anything about carpet. A friend talked me into it. <laughs> and, you know, 10, yeah. 10 years, he bailed out a few weeks later. I didn't know, you know, the back of a carpet from the front. So <laughs> I, I called up the distributors and I, they sent their reps down. I said, if you teach me about carpet, I'll sell you carpet. Yeah. A year later, they were giving me trips to Copenhagen for selling so much carpet. So I was very successful <laughs> at it. You know, yeah, that's awesome. I was one of those guys that started going to Vegas every month, you know, living large, you know. Hmm. And I, I was, I got in at 19. I bought my first house at 21. You know, at one time I owned 12 pieces of property before I started, you know, doing coke. And eventually I started doing coke in, I don't know, it was late 70s. <clears throat> the coke led to the crack and that led to the heroin so I could come down off the coke and, you know, that went on for a long time. I owned a bar. I started drinking. I wasn't really a drinker. And then um, I got involved with the wrong people when I was moving a lot of weight, you know, the coke back and forth to Florida. I ended up getting busted. I did some time. And I got out <clears throat> and uh, I got back into the carpet business. And then I, I slipped again because all my installers were getting high. So mm. the dope was around. I started doing it again. And I reached a point where I actually closed my business after years. I had a very successful business. I closed the doors. I gave all the carpet away. I put up a sign, free carpet. I just couldn't take it anymore. I wanted hmm. to get away from all the installers, all the, 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 the I, I, I called them nitwits. I'm sorry. I, <laughs> you know, I, yeah. I wanted to get away from all of them. They didn't, they couldn't believe that I was closing the store. I closed the store, gave the carpet away. I became an actor. <laughs> hmm. 
I That's got awesome. in the move. I get in a movie, The Fighter, and I've done like oh, 50, 60 movies since then. I'm actually in Stephen King series in Castle Rock, and I'm really? playing a pri- I'm playing a prisoner, believe it or not. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. <laughs> so you know, but you know, I had slipped quite a few times, and then I. I eventually got the gag effect with the dope. I mean, you couldn't even talk about dope around me. My stomach mm. would turn. I would just get sick. You know, I, yeah. I, it was one of those things I wanted to wake up in the morning and just strangle it. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I hated yeah. for what it took away from me. I, I lost, you know, I, I lost property. I, you know, I lost every, just, I, I had two boats, you know, two condos in Florida. I mean, I had, I had a lot. But it was easy come, easy go. So yeah. I was able to hit, hold on to a couple of pieces of property. And thank God <clears throat> I straightened out before I blew those, you know? Yeah, yeah. And uh, and so the the whole time, too, um, you know, that, that that's going on, you you have a family, too? I don't know what the yeah, age, well, like, so. It, it, you know, I try to keep as much as I could from Megan. Yeah. But, you know, when I'm doing, and you're doing time, and she's five years old, she she comes up to visit you and she starts asking you you know mother brings her up and dad why well what is this place i told her it's a forestry camp you know we take care of the animals you know yeah she said why do they have the barbed wires up on the fence Uh here i like to keep the bears out because there's big bears up here making she remembers this story she told the story recently she said well why is the guys why do they have guns i said oh they for the bears. She's an animal lover. She says, they yeah. don't shoot the bears, do they? Said, no, they just scare them away. Yeah, but wow. She, she remembered that story. She was five years old, you know. So, But eventually she caught on. And she she knew what was going on, you know. But I tried to keep it from her as much yeah, as I could, yeah. you know. So, so what does that transition look like for you um, as you you kind of clean up and, um, you know, make, make that that decision to say, I'm leaving that old life behind? And I'm, I'm moving on to do other things like, and then, you know, maybe you could talk a little bit about the transition and then, and then what's your recovery program and, and what does that look like for you today? Well, I, you know, once I made, you know, the decision that that was it, it just, it was like an epiphany that one day you said, that's it. I I'm done. And you know, mm-hmm. inside mm-hmm. I've said it to me I, myself many times, but it was never really a hundred percent. But now when that one time came, I don't know, a light bulb went up and I said, that's it. That's it. I started working out. I wanted to get back into shape, which I did in jail. You know, I started getting my health back. And the better, you know, the more I worked out, the, the better I, my diet was. I, I felt so much better that I was actually enjoying. I'd wake up in the morning, like looking forward to to the day, you know. Yeah. I, I wasn't waking up with my with a big head and like feeling like shit and mm-hmm. so i started enjoying life I, I you know i started enjoying my family more you know and p- spending more time with them and life just became so much better i just can't imagine how i you know how i how anyone could go back to that old life i i, I yeah. you know i, I i'd shoot myself <laughs> if i ever went back honest to god yeah. i i enjoy every single day like I said, I became an actor. I found something that I really loved. And like Megan, years ago, if you put a camera in front of me, I would, I'd run. I'd, I was hmm. high. I couldn't speak in front of a camera, you know. Yeah. And, but as I took acting lessons and, and got used to the camera and got used to being around crowds of people, 
and became more outgoing and life just just got better and better and, and to this day it still gets better and yeah. better every day you know so and, and watching megan's recovery was you know that was the ultimate you know yeah i so, mean I, and i and i think i think that's a good i think that's maybe a good segue into into hearing a little bit about megan's story and how she, how uh, she she came up through this and uh before we go there though i have two quick things just so i don't forget number one um with the acting thing you know i want to point out how how amazing it is to find something that you're passionate about in recovery and a lot of times um, it makes us step out of our comfort zone to find it. And, and just like yeah. you're describing with the acting, um, you know, same thing for, for me with the podcast, like I'm so passionate about doing this stuff, Bobby, you're so passionate about acting. It helps yeah. to give us a purpose. It helps us to find something that, um, it might make us a little <clears throat> bit uncomfortable, a little nervous at times, but we get better at it and better at it when we're doing it. And I know for me that, I mean, this podcast has, has really, really helped me stay dialed in on my recovery, uh, too, yeah. you know, along with doing the, exactly. the do, I know exactly what yeah. you're saying and it's a hundred percent right. Yeah. And so I just, I always try to encourage people, you know, out there who are going through it. Um, and obviously it takes some time. You got to be patient and stuff, but try to find right. something that you really, really love to do and that exactly. you enjoy to do and, and don't have any expectations with it. The shit will come right. like when you just are doing the next right thing. So, uh, Bobby, man, thank you so much for sharing, uh, a, a part of your story, man. That's like, uh, it's, it's just crazy <laughs> that roller coaster ride, man. And I'm, I'm super pumped, uh, to hear you doing so well and just have this thank passion you. behind acting and really, really cool, man. Just find that one thing you love and you'll be all set. I love it, man. I love it. I couldn't agree more. Um, so Megan, let's kind of jump over on your side. Uh, you know, you kind of see, see your dad as a kid, uh, you know, in, in prison, in jail, um, living kind of this lifestyle that's, uh, a, a little bit, um, I would say unpredictable probably. And, uh, how, how does that lead you down your path, uh, in, into addiction and then into recovery? So the ironic part about all of it is like, despite the fact that he thought he was pretty effective at hiding it from me, um, kids know, you know yeah, what I mean? And yeah. like in our neighborhood, it's not like, you know, drug addiction and specifically heroin addiction is something foreign. Like, you know, the look, you know what the eyes look like, you know, the mannerisms, you know, the voice, you just know it when you see it. Yeah. And so growing up around that and, um, and knowing that that's kind of what was going on, you know, I really developed a hatred for it because I had seen, you know, what it had done to my dad and what it had done to my community. And it just wasn't something that I was interested in. And so that's the ironic part is like throughout my high school and my high school was a Catholic high school that got absolutely decimated by the opioid epidemic before mm. anybody even knew what was coming down the pike. Mm -hmm. You know, I remember being a sophomore and we had the first overdose and, and everybody was absolutely devastated by it. And then it just never stopped and it was just wow. continuous. And so I remember like dabbling in it in high school. Um, and by dabbling, I mean, literally tried it twice. But but really just like not understanding what the big hype was and hating yeah. everybody that did it. And was like, cr like, I was like, this is crazy. I would go to parties and everybody would be like fucking zombies. And I would just I remember causing a huge scene at a party one night, like screaming at everybody because I just thought it was ridiculous. Yeah. And then, you know, fast forward till I'm like, what, like 20. Um, I link up with this kid who's a friend of a friend and. I always seemed like such a nice guy and little did I know he was a huge oxy dealer 
and started supplying me with Oxy for free. And when I, when I say literally handed it to me on a platter, <laughs> I literally mean like broke up lines on a platter right. and handed it to me for free. Yeah. Wow. And, and it was excessive, 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 excessive amounts. And around that time, and this was also somebody who was very controlling, very abusive mm. and really had, had, you know, isolated me from, from my friends and I had fallen out with them. And so I really, you know, believe that the way in which my Oxycontin addiction was ignited was this perfect storm of, you know, being isolated from my friends and my family and being wrapped up with this guy who was controlling me in every sense of the word um, and had, including my addiction, and then became my drug dealer. Wow. And so that went on for a while. And truthfully, you know, I say I say it in jest, but I, I'm very serious about it. You know, one of the best decisions that I ever made at that point was find a new drug dealer. Because it literally was my way of breaking ties with this kid and start to maybe figure out a way to like eventually put some sort of plan together to get off of this. And, um, you know, if, uh, I, I was like your typical high functioning addict, like none of my extended family members knew how bad the, the, the problem was. I was able to maintain a job for, you know, long periods of time and kind of hide it. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's just it ended up getting to the point where obviously it just made sense to get heroin because it was cheaper. And then, and then that's when that started. And, and I just remember like every three months, I, you know, cause I just never wanted to be that person. You know, I mm -hmm. like my dreams and hopes as a kid was save the world, save the animals and go to Harvard. Like that, that <laughs> was where I was headed. And to have seen where my life went over the course of those seven years was pretty, pretty devastating. Cause, cause I literally hated the person that I had become. I, absolutely yeah. hated the skin that I was living in. And um, so every three months I would try to clean up. I would, you know, get Suboxone or Methadone off the street. I would taper myself down. I'd always detox myself in my house. And, um, and eventually got to the point where I was like, okay, this is now this is 2010. Vivitrol, which is a non-opioid long-acting injectable that blocks any euphoric effects or any effects at all from any opioids, hmm. had just been FDA approved for opioid addiction. Nobody had even heard about it yet. Mm -hmm. Ironically, the drug dealer who was the abusive boyfriend goes on Vivitrol, does fantastic. I show up at his house one day to buy drugs off of him. <laughs> And he looks awesome, and he's in a great mood, and he lost weight. Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> what the hell? And he's rollerblading around the lake, and I'm like, dude, who? <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Did you just say he was rollerblading? Yeah, he, he like, lived right near a lake, and he was, like, going out rollerblading around the lake. And oh, I'm like, man. this is a kid that was, like, nodded out at every point of every day. You yeah. Know? yeah. And now he's, like, this nice kid. And I'm just like, what is going on? I'm like, what are you doing? And he's like, it's this, this shot, this Vivitrol shot. And he like told me the name of the doctor. And, and I remember looking it up. And from 2010 to 2012, I described that period as being kind of like this. I had one foot in and one foot out in my recovery. And I was mm. still trying to negotiate the terms of how I could still maybe use every once in a while and, and still be okay. Hmm. And so I got on the Vivitrol shot and it, it, I really wasn't committed. So I'd plan a relapse. Um, I'd wait for the medication to wear off. I'd cancel the appointment and lie and, and do the whole, the whole bit. And that kind of, that kind of went on for a little bit. And then finally in 2012, I just said, look, you know, you can either commit to this 110% and do it right or not do it at all. 
Like yeah. enough of the bullshit. And if you're not going to do it at all, then you will have to accept the fact that you are going to be a drug addict for the rest of your life. And if you have kids, your kids are going to have a mother that's a drug addict and that's how that's going to impact them. Hmm. And so that was my biggest, biggest fear. And I was starting to get older at this point. I'm like late twenties at this point. And that's when I finally just said, like, I can't go back to that. I, the whole point in exploring this Vivitrol was to give myself a break of that full-time job of being yeah. a drug addict. Dave, hey, Bobby, did you know all this was going on at the time? Or what was what was your take on this? Was it obvious kept, that... You know, Shane, I kept saying to my wife, I, I know something's wrong with her. The mood, you know, I know yeah. the mood swings and everything. Yeah. And, you know, my wife would say, no, she's studying. She's going for her master's. I think uh, she no, was bachelor's. bachelor's at the time. And, and my wife kept making excuses for her. And when I tried to talk to Megan, it, it was a battle. I mean, yeah. she, you know, Megan's, you know, she, she's a pretty tough for a girl, you know. <laughs> she was into the uh, the uh, kickboxing and everything. And, I, you know, I'm a pretty big guy, but I wouldn't mess with her. <laughs> so I tried talking yeah. to her every chance I got. And that's all I could do, Shane, was try to engage in conversation. Because yeah. I knew what was going on. You know, I, I, I came real close to making a, a terrible mistake once i found out who her boyfriend oh, was yeah yeah you know and yeah. and i had to really make a decision do i you know what i mean i, I yeah i want to live my life with the rest of my life with my family and it was a tough decision for me to make because it would have been very easy easy for me to go over there and take care of this guy i mean yeah. I, I just grew up like that you know so well and 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 i don't you know i don't want to get um you know, Megan, I don't mean to get you off track, but I just want to point point this out real quick. And I wanted to, Bobby, ask you one more question. Like for someone out there who's listening, who might, you know, have a child that's going through that, you know, you've been through it firsthand. Like what kind of advice would you give to somebody who's, um, you know, or maybe they just have a loved one. And that's one of the hardest things because we, we know that we can't help somebody who doesn't want to help themselves. It's it's almost yeah. impossible. They have to want to get help in, in a lot of those situations um, that's, it's, it's just a really tough thing. So, I mean, what would you say to someone out there? Any advice? Shane, the one thing I would say is engage in conversation with them as much as you can hmm. for as long as you can, as often as you can, because, uh, it's your only hope, you know, to get through. Maybe you'll say something eventually that will, that will penetrate, yeah. uh, you know, and and I, I didn't, you know, I didn't believe in the tough love approach with Megan because I know Megan's personality and she was very sensitive. And if you say the wrong thing, you're going to set her back, you know. Yeah. So yeah. I, I didn't, you know, I didn't use that approach. I just try to engage in conversations with her. And that was tough because we made her an apartment upstairs and she could come and go as she pleased. And she avoided me like the plague, you know. So yeah. it was an effort for me to try to get her in the right place and t sit it down and talk to her. But eventually, yeah, you know, it, it worked, I guess, you know, yeah. and, and yeah. by the way, talk to me about things unrelated to the addiction, oh, right, right. not like, you know, shaming me or yeah. being punitive, like literally like about the weather, anything. Yeah. Just trying the to more create you're talking to them. The more time you spent with them, that's the less time they're out there trying to, you know, cop dope or whatever, you know, yeah, so that's good. Uh, I did it as much as I could. And, knock on wood something worked you know yeah i'm sure that's i'm sure that's like it's it's probably heart-wrenching too to see your i mean i have kids my kids are young four and eight but i, I you know if i put myself in your shoes um that's got to be something because that's 
you know, like I said, it's super, super difficult to deal with. We don't want anything more than to be able to help our kids and give them what they need and, and be there for them. And, um, you know, it's gotta be tough, man. So I admire that man that you kind of hung in there. And I think that's great advice too. I'm not telling you what to do. I'm not trying to change you. If you ask for help, absolutely. I'm going to help you, but at least just let me be there for you to love on you. And I think that's, that's a number, number one thing. And beyond that, Megan, let's jump back into your story. I can't get this, this damn vision of the drug dealer rollerblading around the lake out of my head right now. And it's about to make me laugh my ass off. So let me try to X that and, uh, go, go ahead. Let's jump back on track with your with your well, share it's a, it's a funny sight too it's like so six five you know a like what oh are you my doing? gosh yeah that was comedy <laughs> and i and I, i'm not i gotta say too i used to aggressive inline skate we called it right so we skated oh, wow. yeah and so you, you aggressive inline skate ramps and all this stuff on uh on rollerblades so okay anyways i'm totally getting off track please take it <laughs> no, away it. and let me I show that <laughs> so that so i think where i left off was like um I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I left off with, with the Vivitrol and kind of having yeah. that, that yep. crossroad of like, all right, am I going to get this together or am I not? And I just finally surrendered. Like I literally was just like, oh my God, it, it just clicked. I was like, wait a second. So all I have to do is show up every month to get this shot. And once I leave that office, I can go live a life that has nothing to do with this mm. person who I've hated for years, this drug addict. Like, I can actually put it behind me. Yeah. And that's how it really felt at the time. And it really, and I, and I, and I just said, wow, that, that's a relief. Like, that is so much easier than having to maintain this daily habit of waking up every morning. And the first thing I have to do is figure out how I'm going to get to the drug dealer and then try to build the rest of my day around that schedule. It was, it was crazy. Yeah. So, um, in the Vivitrol was fantastic because it stopped my cravings. It stopped the racing thoughts and the obsessive thoughts about using, um, you know, and the research I think is still debatable as to whether or not it does anything in the brain to actually extinguish the cravings. Or if it's that you accept the fact that you are probably not breaking through that blocker with an opioid. And so you're not going to use yeah. feasibly. That's the goal. Right. And, um, and if you can follow the program, that's what ends up happening. And so you just kind of like stop thinking about it. Hmm. And how, how long, how long did it take to where, um, you know, you kind of felt like, like genuinely free and clear from it? Does it, is it, are we talking months, weeks, like what, you know, years? Um, well, I have to say up until, up until that point, I had never, ever been able to build any evidence for myself to prove that I could actually abstain from opioids. Yeah. So it was like the first month, I think it was the second shot when I had gone back and I was like, wait a second, I might be onto something here. And, um, before long, it was like not even quite a year that I had been on the medication and taking it seriously that I started thinking about ways in which I could stimulate my brain again and get myself back into this thing called life. And so I started researching programs to go back to school to study forensic psychology. And I found a master's program of forensic psychology and I was enrolled like, I think it was like under a year of sobriety. Really? Yeah. And then just got rolling and yeah. just have not stopped. Like, I literally have not stopped. I finished a master's degree in, in last summer. Nice. I'm now, you know, second year in my doctoral program. So congratulations. You know, for, That's freaking awesome. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. You know, and it's good for me because it, it stimulates my brain. It builds my confidence and self-efficacy that I can actually retain information and that I'm not this damaged person that my brain can heal. Yeah. Um, and that I, I can do this, you know? And so how, how, how many, um, or how long of, uh, clean and sober do you have? How many 
So time? this past July was six years. Really? And, wow. Yeah. And three and a half of those years I was on Vivitrol. So I like made a conscious decision to come off of it when I felt like I was in a supportive environment of being yeah. in my master's program and knowing that I still had that accountability to go to class and do all my schoolwork. And, um, and yeah, so, I mean, so it's been awesome. Yeah. So, and you mentioned earlier, that's, that's where you met Chris, right? was in school. Right. So right. take us a little bit through that. Like what, what was that like? And, um, you know, maybe you can share a little bit for those out there listening, um, about what happened. Yeah, sure. So, so can I, can I just say something yeah, quick, yeah. real quick, Shane, when she got on the Vivitrol, that's when I could relax and, mm. and, 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 you know, that yeah. Vivitrol meant as much to me as it did to her because now I don't have to worry. I know she's yeah. got the blocker. So the parents, you know, it, it's great for the parents when you know your kid's on something like that. Now you don't have to, now you can sleep at night, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's huge. So, yeah. So. And actually it took so much of the pressure off of me of like proving to my parents that I wasn't using, like they knew I was going for the shot mm. and that's all that they needed to know to be able to sleep at night. And for me, it was appealing because it wasn't an opioid. You know, I wasn't going to get addicted to it. There wasn't going to be withdrawal when I wanted to come off of it. And yeah. that, that's why that was the only medication that was going to be an option for me. Is is Vivitrol, is it an expensive medicine to uh, to get? So if you don't have insurance, it is. It's about $1,200 a shot, mm, um, wow. which is very high. But I don't know what the insurance plans are like in the rest of the country. I know in Massachusetts, yeah. all of the, you know, um, private companies like Blue Cross and stuff, they all cover it. And so doesn't mass health. So it's, it's kind know. of funny too. Like as soon as I asked you that, I kind of like almost wanted to punch myself because it's like, is Vivitrol expensive? Well, it's like, is your fucking life expensive? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Is your life like, yeah. what, what is your life worth? You know, what, what? is your, and, and so, I mean, I don't, I don't mean to put a price on it, but I mean, just in a sense, just for somebody out there who might say, well, shit, how do I get that? Do I need insurance? That's kind of where I was going, but I mean, that's, it's crazy. Yeah. Well, and think about it. I mean, think about how much you're spending on drugs anyway. I mean, oh, yeah. the Vivitrol shot. I mean, that's got to be a bargain for most of us. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, yeah. So that that was a, that was a big part of it. And um, and then, you know, meeting Chris and in, in, well, I was still in the master's program and he was an incoming student in the doctoral program. And we connected because I started that group. And then and then I, I just thought, like, what a cool way here we have now at the time when I met Chris, I was not open about my recovery uh, mm. because, you know, here I was as a professional about to become a therapist at the time. Yeah. And, and like self-disclosure is like this big ethical piece of our job. And we're only <laughs> supposed to disclose like, yeah. you know, like in like in the forensic world, you disclose nothing. Like you give first mm. name, last initial, that's it. Because, you know, you're working with an incarcerated population. Maybe there's a risk, maybe there's yeah. danger, whatever. So I was petrified. I was absolutely petrified to say like, oh, I have this deep, dark secret in my past that, mm -hmm. you know, in the academic world is not going to be respected. Um and so, but I desperately wanted to lend my knowledge and experience. So that's why I start this group. And the whole time Chris is like, you know, he, he, he talked about it later, but he had said, you know, maybe Megan's one of the people that like is a loved one and just like really gets it. Mm. But Megan like really gets it. Like, I don't know. <laughs> There's something up there. Yeah. So he, he like had suspicions. And then he, um, I asked him to speak on a, on a panel for an event that I was running, um, with, um, some parents that had lost children to overdoses and my cousin sat on the panel and, um, 
and the Wahlberg Foundation was a part of it. So James Wahlberg with the film If Only came and spoke and we showed the film and, and it was great. And I watched Chris really just own his experience of being a drug addict and now being in recovery. Yeah. And, yeah. and not making any apologies for it. And I was like, and, you know, my cousin did the same thing. And I was just like, wow, this is really powerful. Like they can't be that much different from me. And if they can do it, maybe I can at least give it a shot. And that's when I decided to to just tell my clinical seminar class that I was in recovery and that this was the secret that I had been holding on to and that it was just a relief to be able to speak it to another human being. And that's how it started. Yeah, yeah that's crazy. So you, so you got a little bit of freedom and being able to open up, start this group and start talking about not just from the professional's perspective, but from your own perspective. And um, I think that's, I mean, that's a huge um a huge plus for anybody doing work in that field is to be able to have that personal experience at the same time, like you were saying, you got to kind of watch out because what information you're given, if you're working with people who are incarcerated or who, you know, who knows what, um, you know, who knows who, who you're working with, I guess at, right. at any point, uh, you kind of got to toe that line lightly. And it sounds like that's kind of what you were trying to do. Yeah. And I didn't want to, like, I didn't know what the reception was going to be. I didn't want to, you know, ruin my career options. And I didn't know who was going to discriminate against me because of it. And so, but meanwhile, I'm listening to all these professionals on national levels talk about the subject of addiction. And I'm like, but I know that too. And I know that because I was a guinea pig for seven years. You know what I mean? I don't, I didn't know that because I studied this for 10 years in a classroom. Like I actually lived it too. Yeah. 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 And I just felt a little like, well, what the fuck, man? Like I'm sitting here and doing all this work and I have to stay quiet about this. And I know 10 times more than you guys. And like, <laughs> I should be able to say it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I love and it. So that, and so really a lot of my work, I started doing um, event planning and stuff for these opioid crisis forums that my school holds. Yeah. And I, I was in contact with a lot of pretty high profile people and just felt like, okay, I'm like immersed now into it. I've been doing the work and, and maybe it's not so scary if I, if I, you know, say who I really am. Yeah. Do you, uh, do you find it hard to, to separate the work that you do from your personal recovery or do you, do you have a certain strategy that you use for that? Well, I mean, we talked about this with Chris's passing. Um, you know, I, I, I think the big learning point that we can take from it as budding psychologists in the field is, you know, and whether or not this really played a role in Chris's story, you know, we'll never really know. But I do think it's worth generating a conversation about how self-care is so imperative in yeah. us doing this work. So so re- real quick, because for for those out there listening who might not know, I didn't I didn't mention this and I'll maybe kind of let you say, um, you know, can. So Chris, Chris and Dave have the dopey podcast, which is out of Boston, just to give a little background here, right? This is how you guys, uh, you, you met Chris through, uh, through school and right. recently, um, Chris passed away just in the last month, in the last month, I believe. Right. I mean, it's yeah. not too long ago. And yep. so, um, I don't know the ins and the outs. I was too much of a chicken shit to listen to the actual episode. My mom listened to it and, and she filled me in on some of the details, but, um, I don't know how deep you want to go into that. Or if you, if you even just want to mention it or whatever, just, I, I just wanted to give a little background, uh, before we go any further. Yeah. Yeah. So, Chris and Dave host the Dopey podcast and yeah, Chris is a Boston dude, but Dave is New York and he, and Chris would go out to New York to record. So they're really kind of like, um, New That's York right. based, I guess I would say. 
but but Chris um had a gnarly history of addiction, like I don't know, something like eleven treatment facilities, um early 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 onset with the drinking and, and crack cocaine and that sort of thing, like, you know, fifteen and, and mm-hmm. maybe even earlier. But um but had finally put some time together and um got himself into this program and thought that maybe his life experience um would do him some good in, in trying to help people that had lived a similar life as his and yeah. was doing great and, and was, you know, part of a twelve step community and was really committed to it. Um and for whatever reason and there are different theories as to like what actually um precipitated you know the whole situation and the relapse and all of that but you know he he stopped going to meetings um you know he was stressed out with school and his workload and mm. i think thought that doing the um the treatment that he was doing with clients working at a substance abuse treatment facility and then doing the podcast i think he started to take that for granted a little bit mm. And started to not be as diligent about his recovery and then couple that with an injury that prevented him from working out, which was a big release for him. Um, yeah. You know, who knows what the thought process was that that ignited that. Um, but whatever happened, he relapsed. Um, he was fighting with his girlfriend uh, the night before he passed away. He got into a fight with her and and like basically told her to leave. And she was like, I can't, you know, I can't fight with you anymore. Like, I'm just going to stay at my family's house. And so she left. And, um, and I think at that point people were concerned about him and thought maybe something was up. Yeah. And, um, I know he was on the phone with Dave until like six 30 that morning. Oh, wow. And Dave had been checking on him and I know Chris's girlfriend was concerned about him. So that's why mm. Dave was staying in contact and yeah. heard from him at six 30 and then got a call at like 10 that he had passed. And, wow. um, that, that fast, he, you know, just yeah, it was, all it of a was sudden. that. Yep, it was well, that, that. And, and so and and thank you for thank you for sharing that and giving um you know giving myself and those out there listening a little background who who might have not known um and that kind of that kind of brings us back I think to the original question that I had asked is how do you separate your personal recovery um you know from um you know if you're if you're working in an environment and working with other people and i mean i guess i can even go for sponsee or for sponsors too or who totally. are sponsoring guys um you know how do we kind of how do we kind of separate those so, i mean what do you, do you have a strategy that you use like what's your take on that yeah i mean honestly it's never really like a, a big deal to me unless i have a client with like a like almost identical profile as me. So like, yeah. you know, 30 something female history of opioid addiction. And now like in a graduate program, which I've had clients like that before. And it's, it's, it definitely brings up some shit. Yeah. Um, and so I think, you know, here's the thing is like, we don't get into this field to be clinicians or, you know, offer ourselves as sponsors because, um, you know, we're just Joe Schmo off the street, cookie cutter, fucking vanilla. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like we we're called wounded healers for a mm-hmm. reason. And that's why we gravitate towards the helping field is because we have the lived experience and, and, um, you know, it kind of speaks to us in a different way. And so all the reason more why we should be taking care of ourselves and making sure that we have those outlets, whatever it be, you know, and it doesn't even mean that you have to be somebody in recovery. It, it's it's even more the reason why we need to remain diligent. But most of us in this field have some sort of personal history. It could be an eating disorder. It could be depression. It could yeah. be bipolar. You know, it could be whatever. Yeah. And so for me, it's it's imperative that I disconnect from the technology. That I'm not responding to emails uh, just because somebody sends one doesn't mean I have to respond right away. 
um, going for hikes, making sure I'm getting out into nature. Like I did two trips this summer to Acadia National Park and to the White Mountains. Like that's the type of shit that I need. You know, I need to know that that the world is much bigger than me and there's a much bigger purpose out there for why we do what we do and, 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 yeah. and to yeah. get out of that narcissistic, you know, hamster wheel that we get stuck in in the society and that and like the small shit like that upsets us on a day-to-day like it just doesn't matter when you get Mm -hmm. out into a mountain that's you know bigger than you could ever imagine you know yeah no yeah i love it and that you know you're really describing just that self-care piece and finding finding something that you enjoy to do getting out in nature for me um it's backpacking i love taking a couple of backpacking trips a year hiking jogging that kind of stuff getting getting my blood flowing and getting out yeah. there and actually doing something um it's it's something that's huge it's a release uh, even just walking like i love waking up early in the morning and grabbing a cup of coffee and walking the dog you know what i mean just walk totally. just just getting rolling for the morning get my mind going some prayers and meditation uh that self-care stuff is just absolutely huge um yeah and actually speaking just meditation real quick i mean oh yeah yeah enough last in in therapy therapy like i just believe and and it's not because i'm a therapist it's because i really believe that as human beings we're very complicated and in order for us to present our best selves to the world and to have the best impact on people that we can, we, we got to do soul searching and we got to dig deep and we got to find out why it is that we're fucked up and we got to yeah. do the best we can to try to heal those parts of our psyche that, you know, made us do the shit that we, that we did. And so I I've been fortunate enough to be working with a therapist, this particular therapist for the past year where I do heart chakra meditation, which is really about, you know, digging into that piece of my soul that allows me to have self-compassion for myself, of course, but also to have compassion for other people and to just not react to things the way that I, I maybe once did. And so that's been hugely what's, instrumental. Yeah, what, what's it called again? Heart shock? It's it, Heart chakra, yeah. It's not a type of meditation that most people do. Yeah, I don't think I've heard of it. So what it, is it? it? Can you explain it a little bit? That sounds really interesting. Yeah, so really what it is is like, it's not a cognitive type of meditation. It's really like an emotional type. So hmm. So I may take a situation that has been triggering for me over the past week, like maybe somebody said something that was upsetting, Mm -hmm. um, you know, and my therapist will sit there and process it with me and figure out, you know, at what point in my life did I experience something that might be triggered by this instance, you know? Yeah. yeah. So, So we try to trace that back and we and we look at like my whole history, my childhood. Okay, well, this represents, you know, that instability in your family when you were a child and didn't feel like maybe people were in control. And so therefore you stepped up to take control of the situation at a time when you didn't have the skills to do it. Okay. So that makes sense as to why I'm a control freak and I want to control the things around me. So we start to dig into that stuff and really tap into your own vulnerability. And so you sit there with the meditation and and we call it, you know, you drop into the heart center and you really just like, what I do is I envision this ray of light going between my heart and the person's heart whom I might be having an issue with. And I sit through it and I sit with it and I allow those feelings of anxiety or whatever comes up to pass. And eventually that image of that person starts to take on a new shape and a new meaning. And, and it, it really just like transforms the way in which you perceive a situation and you begin to understand that it's your own vulnerability that was triggered by that person and really has nothing to do with them, but really yeah. a lot to do with what's ever coming up for you. And that's where you begin to do the work. Yeah, that is, that is really, really cool. And it's, it's crazy how, 
um, how much personal responsibility is involved in something like that? Because it's easy to point the finger, like my, my counselor would always say in, in rehab, he would say, you know, that old classic line, like every time you point the finger, there's, you know, uh, there's uh, three fingers pointing back at you. And it's like, yeah. where's, where's my place in this? How do I, how do, and even if it's something that was, was bad that happened as, you know, maybe as a kid that you really don't have control over, um, you know, in some, in some, way there is your part in that somehow and it's like how do you look at that you know and so meditation i you know i don't know if maybe i've just haven't heard it um the way you kind of of put it before uh uh, say it again shock heart or heart shock yeah so there's like seven different chakras there's like the root chakra and the sacral chakra and all these things this one is the heart chakra okay oh okay i got you i got you now yeah yeah yeah. so it's when you said drop into the heart i know i've i've kind of heard that and i'm kind of new to the to the whole meditation um uh i don't know probably in the last in the last maybe year or so and um it's just been really eye-opening for me you know what i mean and uh it's been a great way to kind of start the day little meditation prayer um and i always thought meditation was this weird thing where you sat and like hummed and stuff you know a lot of people i think think that and it's totally (laughs) totally not you know it's and like when i finally like was like man get your head out of your ass like start you know learning a little bit man it's it's been a really really cool thing and thank you for sharing that too Uh, you know i'm gonna look into it a little bit more myself definitely definitely um, and like I use, I use it, you know, I'll use it now. I'll be, you know, ready to go up to speak at, at a big convention or, or a speech or whatever. And yeah. I'll, my nerves will start to get going and, and I'll start to think about like, well, what is it that I'm afraid of? Like what could possibly happen up here that would be so bad? And, and so I imagine like, you know, somebody judging me. And so I sit there and I sit maybe 15, 20, 30 seconds before I have to go up and, mm-hmm. and I get into my zone. And I, like I said, I drop into the heart center and I really start to have compassion for myself that everything is going to be okay. And that, and that I'm worthy and that, oh, you know, good. no, no one's going to hate me for this. And even if I bomb up here, there's still something meaningful that I can take from this experience. And so you're a hundred percent right. The work in which my therapist does with me is very much, what is your role in this, in this universe? How is yeah. it? What do you put out into the world that brings these certain energies towards you? And what role do you play in that? And how can you work on it? Yeah, that's so good. I love that you said you know, a couple of good things, but one that really stands out is I am worthy. Like how hard is that sometimes, especially going up in front of a crowd of people, you know, there's nerves there. There's, you know, all kinds of stuff going on emotionally. You're trying to make sure that you're on point on whatever you're going to talk about at the same time. You know, a lot of those insecurities can come creeping back in if we don't know how to handle them. And so through training, through practice and stuff, that's kind of where this stuff comes in. And the worthiness, I mean, that's a huge thing. Able to flip it and get get some positive spin on it. Um, Well, I'm looking at the clock here and I think we just we got a a couple of minutes left. Let's try to wrap this thing up right now. Um, I wanted I want to get your guys both both your takes. I mean, to anyone out there listening, um, you know, who might be new to recovery or they have someone who who's struggling out there, uh, any advice? advice, any words of insight, anything you could share that might, might help somebody? Oh man. I mean, if I could bottle up what I've done in my recovery and just give it to somebody, I totally would because (laughs) it goes, it goes far beyond just stopping the drugs and stopping the substance. It really goes. And that's, and that's what you never, ever expect to do. You know, when somebody tells you, you got to clean up and get off drugs and you do take it one day at a time in the beginning, but man, would I love to be able to give somebody a tangible object, something where they can really see what life could be like in, in five, six years from that starting point. And, 
and to, and to really not be afraid to go deep, you know, soul search, do whatever it is that you have to do. And, and the way that I say it is like repair the holes in, the, in your soul that led you to the addiction in the first place, like really get to it and try to be the best person that you could be and, and, and realize that you have a potential here that you have not even met yet because of the drugs and like give yourself the chance to actually meet yourself, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's good. How about for you, you know, Bobby? Shane, I, I'd say, uh, and I know it's easier said than done. Find that one thing that you really love to do and, and you'll be all set. And, and some people, you know, they ask, well, how do I find that? And I, I say to them, well, what is the one thing that you would be willing to do every day, get up first thing in the morning and do every day and enjoy it and not get paid for it and do it for free yeah. and really have a good time at it and look forward to waking up the next day to do it again for free. And I found it in acting because I've done I've worked so many sets, so many hours for zip on these independent films and look forward to waking up the next day and putting in another 15 hours mm. and so on. And the next day, and sometimes it's right under your nose, just figure out what you would be willing to do for free and do it every day and take, take money out of the equation and you do it every day. And, and really enjoy it. And if you find it, and sometimes it's right under your nose. What do you like for yeah. hobbies? You know. Mm -hmm. it's, uh, so that's that's I don't know. That's the best thing I can I can give. I love you it, know? man. I love it. I, one more thing, Shane. I just yeah. want to add. I just want to add one more thing. So one of the big things that I attribute to being able to like build the confidence in myself and really get settled in my recovery was just believing in what we call neuroplasticity, which is that the brain can heal. There are new neural pathways that fire every time we engage in a behavior that we haven't done yet. And that excites mm. us, which is which is the reason why it's imperative to try new things in recovery. So you can figure out what it yeah. is that you like and what it is that stimulates your brain. And the other part is that I've always had mental health issues, depression and anxiety and all those things underlying, you know, beneath the addiction and, and, you know, psychiatric medications just never spoke to me. And so I've been able to explore ways to manage that stuff through things like amino acids and supplements and alternative stuff. And that's, you know, not the answer for everybody. And some people are going to hear that and say, that's, you know, a bunch of quacky, whatever. But it has literally changed my life in the knowledge that I have about mm. the ways in which amino acids can help manage our moods it's been instrumental. And so I encourage anybody to do some research and to find some sort of pathway that speaks to you and to not be afraid to ask the questions and to bring it to your doctor and, and find the resources. They're out yeah. there. Yeah, that's good stuff right there. I mean, stepping out a little bit, getting a little uncomfortable and uh, and, and finding some new uh, opportunities and new, new ways, something that we haven't tried before, you know? So I love it. Um, I want to mention one thing too, real quick. Uh, um, I saw on, on, uh, your website, the addictionary podcast.com, right? I got that correct, right? The dictionary podcast.com. Okay, cool. Yeah. So if you guys want to check out, um, the, the website, you can go there. I'll put that in the show notes. What I also saw there that I wanted to uh, mention was the 5k race in honor of Chris. And so yep. I saw, uh, there's a 5k race coming up. Uh, it says, um, 
uh, in Chris's honor for the Shatterproof Rise Up Against Addiction on September 23rd in Boston. And uh, you can donate to the Addictionary Podcast team or you can register. Um, and I'll put the link for that in the show notes. And of course, you can go to the addictionarypodcast.com and the info's on there too. Uh, the, the, the last or next thing too, we got to do a, sh- Seth and I want to come out to Boston. We got to do a live show sometime. I mean, that'd oh, be so yeah. legit. Um, we're, we're going to do this one in Petaluma. Yeah. In September. And we're kind of going to get our, um, you know, we'll, we'll get the first one out of the way and get any of the kinks out and have some fun and kind of see how that works. And then, uh, you know, may, maybe we can talk about that later. I think that'd be a, a great thing to do. Sounds Absolutely. great. I love yeah. it. The recovery community out in Boston is pretty solid, so you'd be very welcomed here. Oh, I I bet. I uh you know, I've always wanted to come to Boston. I've still never been able to go. I'll have to go when Oakland's out there so we can go to uh, Fenway and watch a little baseball. That would be the best. Oh yeah, absolutely, man. <laughs> That'd be awesome. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Definitely. Watch the Red Sox kick some ass. <laughs> <laughs> man, they're absolutely crushing it right now. I can't believe they it. Are yeah. They're they they are. They're on fire. And the A's, you know, the A's are doing damn good, too. I just went to a game uh, uh, last week, and uh, I think they were playing Seattle. And we, we had a good time. I love I love some baseball. And it's great being sober at the game, too. You know, I, I get That's to remember right. the game. I don't spend a shitload of money anymore. So good stuff. Right. Th- uh, thank you guys both uh, for coming on, for taking some time. I greatly appreciate it. Good luck with everything, with the Addictionary Podcast, with school, with acting, all that good stuff. I love it. Thank you for your inspiration and sharing all that good stuff. I really appreciate you guys. Uh, thank, thank you, Shane. You, Shane. Thank you, brother. Yeah, absolutely. You keep up the good work. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. Absolutely. Thanks for tuning in today. Uh, if you have any questions, you need some help, you can always call Foundations Recovery Network. They have a private line. It's 877-714-1318. Uh, shout out to Azure Acres. Uh, they're inviting me back to circle around uh, to speak this weekend. So I'm really pumped about that. Thank you to them. And then uh, once again, thanks to our sponsors, Silver Nation Foundations, Humans. And uh, we love you guys. Thanks for tuning in. Peace, love, respect, and keep your blood clean.